The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Looking at the state of the climate, the Climate Council says that uh, July was the world's hottest month on record. And uh, they say that this is another sign of the worsening impacts of climate change and the urgent need to reduce emissions this decade. On the line to speak to this and might touch on a couple of other aspects to do with the climate, we've got Professor Will Steffen, who is a spokesperson from the Climate Council and Emeritus Professor at Australian National University. Professor, thanks very much for your time once again. My pleasure. So talk to us about July. Uh, What happened there? Well, July was the hottest month on uh, record uh, since we've been keeping records back to 1880. It's just another indicator that the climate system is moving very very rapidly toward much hotter and more dangerous conditions. It's this uh, extreme heat which actually represents uh, 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 an additional level of energy in the system that's leading to the massive fires, the floods, uh, the extraordinary heat that we're seeing not only here in Australia but right around the world. So it's yet another reminder that we really need to move fast now to get the climate system under control. How much hotter was July than what the normal average would suggest? Uh, I'm not sure uh, in the pro- precise number, but it would be somewhere between a degree and a degree and a half Celsius. Uh, it depends on what baseline you use. Uh, we use a, uh, a baseline of uh, 19... I think 1960 to 1990 in Australia. So it depends on that. But it, but it was uh, at least a degree and probably closer to a degree and a half Celsius higher than the longer-term average. And how significant is it to measure month by month, or is it more beneficial when you're looking at the climate to do it year by year, or how do you actually work out what the overall trend is suggesting? Uh, it's better to do it year by year, and you need to look at the comparisons over at least three decades uh, and perhaps longer. We tend to use an 1850 to 1900 baseline as pre-industrial. That's what the IPCC used. So we reference what's happening uh, compared to that. So uh, the average for the last decade was 1.1 degree uh, Celsius above that. Uh, and right now we're seeing it about 1.2 degrees above that in terms of global averages. So, and to put this in perspective, uh, the difference between an ice age and a warm period, that's going back in geological time, is about 4 or 5 degrees Celsius. So we're looking at really significant changes in terms of the climate system, uh, even from a geological perspective. And what does that suggest in terms of the warming that we're likely to see by the end of this century? Well, it depends, of course, on our emissions, uh, but we're going to see at least uh, 1.5 and slightly above, even under the best-case scenario. Uh, and, of course, to get back within 1.5, we have to learn how to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. But in a worst-case scenario, if we keep emitting at high rates uh, of greenhouse gases, uh, we could reach 4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And as I mentioned, that's about the same as the difference between an ice age and a warm period, but obviously in the opposite direction, getting hotter rather than colder. And I'm just seeing that there seems to be a bit of dispute about exactly what we're emitting in Australia, because I see some people, like the government, suggest, no, the emissions have gone down on 2005 levels. I see other people with graphs that suggest that they've gone up on 2005 levels. So what do the uh, actual, what does the statistics point to? Uh, Are we actually reducing our emissions here in Australia? It depends on whether you include land use change or not. Uh, because deforestation, of course, uh, emits CO2 to the atmosphere. Uh, and if you combine that with greenhouse gas emissions, 
and use 2005 when deforestation was very high, uh, you get a, you get a, a slow uh, reduction in emissions. But when you look at fossil fuel emissions, which are really the long-term problem, they account for 90% of the warming. Our emissions have flatlined or slightly drifted upwards uh, over the last decade or so, uh, two, when we need to get them going down rapidly. So, so the bottom line is, when you do a careful analysis, um, Australia is really well behind what many other countries are already doing. We're considered one of the global laggards in climate change because of that. What's the biggest source of our fossil fuel emissions if we wanted to change our emissions? Would it be burning coal-fired, uh, or burning coal, coal-fired power stations? Is that the biggest issue? Well, there are two of them that are both big and relatively similar. One is coal and one is gas, uh, the two major fossil fuels that uh, we have. We don't have much oil here. Uh, and what oil we burn, mainly in, in, in transport, comes from overseas. So coal and gas are the big ones. Uh, coal is obviously the one we could get out faster because uh, we've got very good alternatives. Most of our coal, virtually all of it's used in electricity generation, uh, and we can substitute renewables for that. Uh, and it, and we can do it with economic benefits as well. So coal's the number one uh, fossil fuel to get out of the system as fast as we can. We could do it, I think, within this decade. Uh, but we also have to get, get gas out uh, and, and get that out of the system as fast as possible. Uh, one of the issues with gas is that there is a, uh, uh, there are emissions of methane uh, that leak out from the gas production process, and that's an exceptionally powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, so it's important that we get gas out of the system ASAP as well. How much worse is methane than carbon dioxide in terms of the greenhouse effect? It depends on, on, on the time frame that you use um, because uh, they have different lifetimes. CO2 is up in the atmosphere in, in large quantities for centuries. Methane has a half-life of about 10 years. But when it's up there, it's far more powerful uh, than, than CO2. In fact, when you look at the last decade, um, that is tw- uh, 2010 to 2019, uh, and look at the warming caused by CO2 and caused by methane. Methane was about 67% uh, of, of the warming caused by CO2, so it was an extremely important player. So on a decadal time frame, out to say 2030 or 2040, it is really critical uh, that we get methane emissions down as fast as we can uh, because they are a very big, it is a very big player. And it seems that even though we've been talking about this for a long time here in Victoria, if you look at where the energy generation is coming from, uh, we still are very reliant on brown coal. Uh, Even though we've uh, built wind farms and alternative sources of energy, we still, I believe, have the overwhelming majority of our energy coming from uh, coal-fired power. Well, I think those are pretty old power stations, and they can be phased out fairly quickly. The point about renewables, uh, both wind and solar, they, they are now cheaper. In fact, solar is cheaper uh, than existing coal-fired power stations, let alone building any new ones. So it makes economic sense for Victoria to get out of brown coal uh, as, as fast as it can. The second point is you can roll out renewable at scale very, very quickly. Uh, it doesn't take very long to put in solar panels. Uh, so it, it's it's certainly conceivable that Victoria could become very close to 100% renewable by 2030. Uh, and that's the sort of time frame uh, we need to look at to really uh, make an effective um, effective uh, uh, a goal of, of, of meeting the climate challenge. And what would you look to replace brown coal with? Would it be solar as the best uh, and fastest way of replacing coal-fired power? A mix of solar and wind. Victoria has very good wind resources as well. Uh, so I would say a mix, 
Uh, and, and there's a good reason for that. One is quite often when the sun isn't shining, the wind is blowing uh, and vice versa. So that gives you more stability in, in the system. Uh, in terms of stability in the Southeast Australian grid system, we've got the snowy hydro scheme uh, right across the border from Victoria. Uh, and also you've got the Basslink uh, connector to Tasmania, which has a very big hydro resource. They, they tend to provide backup. Uh, when uh, the intermittency of the renewables can't quite cover uh, the demand. So Victoria is in a good position, actually, to go 100% renewable uh, with, uh, with, with hydro on both sides of your border that you're connected to. You probably know that we've got a battery uh, being built just up the road from where we are. Wouldn't we have to build a lot more of those batteries if we were to move to renewable sources of energy for the uh, majority of our energy um, consumption? Well, that's a good question. I mean, South Australia's built a, a big battery. We're building a big battery in the ACT as well to smooth out our um, intermittent renewables. Uh, and the general thought is it's a combination of hydro and batteries that are going to give you that backup. Uh, so you'd have to do the engineering assessment of what's the best mix of hydro and batteries uh, to meet that uh, that smoothing out. But batteries are certainly part of the solution. So, yes, it's a good idea that you're putting in batteries and not relying only on hydro as, as backing up the renewables. And do we know what the cost would be to initiate that change from uh, brown coal to renewable energy uh, as quickly as 2030? Would it be a significant investment, even if it meant that we'd have cheaper power at the end of it, but the upfront cost, I'd imagine, would be quite big? Uh, the solar panels aren't that expensive anymore. The prices have dropped quite a bit. So it certainly would be an investment. We certainly made that investment already in the ACT. And mind you, we did that. Uh, we started about a decade ago when renewables were much more expensive. Uh, and we're 100% renewable, and it certainly has not blown out the territory budget. So it's telling me that the, the actual experience is, yes, you can do this. You can do it fast. Um, and you can do it uh, actually with economic gains. We've got some of the lowest electricity prices in the country now. And I see here the Climate Council is recommending that Australia cuts its emissions to 75% below 2005 levels by 2030, and the target is to reach net zero by 2035. Uh, realistically, how likely is that target? You've, got to, you've really got to put priority on those targets, uh, they can be done technologically. There are groups that have looked uh, at what, at how they could be met. Uh, the rule of thumb is you uh, get to 100% renewable electricity as fast as you can. As I said, we did it in the ACT in about nine years. Uh, so you can do it. Uh, and then you electrify uh, other sectors. Uh, and get part of the emissions out there. That'll get you close to 75% when you do that. It's a huge ask, and it's going to be disruptive. There's no doubt about that. But the point is, what people forget is not getting climate change under control. Uh, that's really an existential threat to future generations. They may not have a planet they can live on. So when you look at it that way, it's a very, very good investment to make sure that your children and grandchildren can actually have a life. And that's not something that's guaranteed if we let climate change get out of control. Professor, thanks very much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Professor Will Steffen with us there, who is a spokesperson from the Climate Council Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.